Hi, everyone, and welcome to Such a Good Feeling, a podcast interview series where I talk to creatives and performers about those magical moments in their lives where small things changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson. I've been lucky enough to work with some of the most incredible people as a producer and a musical director and a writer over the years, including today's guest, uh, who is the incredible Cliff Masterson, who is a composer, a producer, an orchestrator, a songwriter. He's worked with everyone from Kylie, Josh Groban, Little Mix, Emily Sande, Lionel Richie, Michael McDonald. He's written the theme song for Destiny at the Walt Disney's World Epcot Center and has conducted many, many huge scores uh, for movies and has been my creative collaborator and friend for over 20 years. So how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, no, I'm good, thank you. Locked in my little room, have been here for some time, you know, occasionally food comes in through the door and I'll do a bit of eating while I'm working, but no, everything's good, thank you. I like it, I like it. Yes, it's, uh, we've all been a bit sort of locked in the room, but uh, as this podcast is being recorded, um, we're getting to the point where we've we've actually had conversations today, Cliff and I, about things that we do together um, that may be happening later on in the year. There is so, definitely light has been turned on. So some of them the may have happened. Who knows? Who knows? But the idea of the podcast is um, to talk to incredibly brilliant creative people about um, about their work, but also how they found themselves in this weird position of doing this for a job, which none of us believe is a job. Um, we are all very lucky to do it because it's a hobby and sometimes we get paid for it. But um, I'd really like to start with uh, just to kind of get the mood set um just the the podcast is called such a good feeling and it's about feelings and good feelings so before you got into buying music for yourself I mean what was it like growing up in your house what kind of music was being played around your house yeah I think everybody you know we're all kind of spoon-fed this kind of um you know the, the music of your parents is what you, you listen to basically and I'm sure I'm the same with my kids you know they listen to the stuff that I like you know um as a starting point but I guess and this also probably guided me without actually without any doubt it guided me to end up doing what I'm doing because my mum was a huge Barry Manilow fan I ended up being you know a singer songwriter piano player for a few years and my dad um listened to non-stop James Last and of course that was the commercial as, as cheesy as it might be that was kind of the commercial side of orchestral pop music at the time through the 70s and 80s and you know I guess I was inspired by that in that you could you, I could hear how pop songs of the time could could translate onto the orchestra. So I suppose growing up in a house with those two major influences, obviously I moved on to other stuff as I kind of got older and, and made choices for myself. But yeah, the house was always filled with music. Um, there were musical instruments about, even though, I mean, my dad uh, used to play a bit of guitar. And then when I was very young, uh, they got one of these old um, sort of dual manual organ things that my dad wanted to have a go on. And uh, it sat in the house and and he barely used it. And of course, I jumped on it and just played it all the time. And that was my first experience of ha having any kind of keyboards with these kind of cheesy, awful sounds, you know, and uh, sort of, you know, eight different rhythms, you know, amazing that you could have eight different rhythms at once, you know, incredible. But um, yeah, so I jumped on it and my dad kind of gave up because I guess being younger, I was able to pick it up perhaps faster than he did. And it just became my, my place in the, in, the, in the house was basically sat with the headphones on, on that organ. Would it be fair to say that your first real, outside of the James last thing, your first real experience of an orchestral sound would have been soundtracks? 
Um, for sure. You know, for instance, yeah. like a John Williams or someone like that. He, he's, he's top of the list, yeah. Of course, 77 Star Wars, and you sort of hear that soundtrack. Um, John Williams being, in my opinion, one of the best, if not the best, you know, film composer of, of present time. Yeah, some amazing melodies and brilliant orchestration, but also very complicated, you know, um, but perfectly, perfectly um, written to to narrate to help narrate the story of uh, the of the scene. And and did you have an idea? Were you intrigued about what may how that sound was made and the components of it? Yes, although I think for a long time, like so many people, I would just listen to the score and let it enveloped me I wanted it almost didn't want to analyze it too much I just wanted to watch the film and enjoy it and, and not think too much about the mechanics of how it works but just how it played in the scene and how it underscored you know the particular scene you were watching cool and then from your parents music um good old question and you know I'm based on the such a good feeling thing again but I mean what's your first it's either the, the record that you wore out when you were sort of a teenager or the record, if we're, it's sometimes a record you spent first spent your own money on, but, you know, what's the, because back in those days for, um, for the younger listeners, you know, kind of the music that you owned was the music that you listened to because mm. there was no Spotify and there was no iTunes and, yeah. you know, there's the radio and stuff. But, I mean, did you have an album, vinyl or whatever, that you just wore out? Yeah, well, I mean, I've still got all of my vinyl now. It's a bit warped, it's in the shed, it's still there. Um, I actually remember really clearly the first record I got because I didn't buy it. I got it free with a pair of Clark shoes. Nice. <laughs> I got I got a copy of I'm Still Standing by Elton John with okay. a pair of shoes. Um, so that was probably the first record I owned. Clever marketing. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. The first record I think I probably bought was Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. Okay. Probably the same year, 83-ish, I would have thought something like that. Um, and all the way through those kind of mid-80s, you know, I was buying singles. But I think the first album I bought and uh, really, I mean, well, there's two or three albums I could name that I've listened to more than anything else. Um, the first one was probably Scoundrel Days by Aha, which I listened to endlessly. And then um, I got a copy of Hysteria by Def Leppard, which is, of course, the complete other end of the musical spectrum in a way. Mm. And the one thing I remember doing, which now when I think about it is really bizarre, being a teenager, this is the last thing you would imagine, but I actually set my alarm early in the morning so I could get up and listen to it. Now, that's really weird. <laughs> Probably makes me a complete lunatic. But, yeah, I, I just wanted to hear it so much that rather than just waking up and putting it on, I actually set my alarm so I could listen to it. Amazing. A bit broken, really. <laughs> well, that's it. But it's also, it, that's really good in the sort of a rebellious stage of, you know, from Barry Manilow and James Last to Def Leppard. Yeah, uh, but then <laughs> Hysteria is a massive record yes, of choruses, some incredible chorus. And also, I like to, I sort of think of it as Thinking Man's Rock because it's not just you know, four chords, it's Mutt Lang, it's really cleverly considered progressions and, you know, key changes all over the place. It's not just your bog standard, you know, three chord trick. It's really smart music. And, yeah. the, and obviously the production is just incredible as well, all the overdubs and everything they did to make that sound, uh, you know, yeah. allegedly recording one string at a time on the guitar is one of the stories I heard, which yeah. wouldn't surprise me. No, no, absolutely not. So you've, you've got this music, you've got, you're starting to build up a record collection. At what point did you think, I might like to do this or be involved in it? I don't think I ever thought I'd do anything else, if I'm honest. You know, I, I went from being the eight-year-old choir boy in the church to, to listening to Def Leppard at whatever, 14, 15 or something. And 
in between listening to all this music of all these different genres and I always thought I would do something in music. I never really seriously considered doing anything else. I had other interests and, you know, I'm quite artistic and photography and, and painting and things, but music was I lived and breathed it for as long as I can remember. My mum always tells this story of when I was really tiny, um, I bought this on, they bought me this sort of a noddy record and it had this kind of play-along section. And the story is, and I have to believe it, is that I had this little xylophone or glockenspiel thing. Uh, apparently I was sort of three or four and I would actually play along with it in, you know, in the correct, using the correct notes and the correct, correct timing. And my mum's saying to my dad, you know what, I think he might, I think he might be musical. And my dad, you know, no, don't be ridiculous. No, it's just it's luck, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I just never really considered seriously doing anything else, to be honest. And luckily, I've got this far and haven't had to. But in, initially, when you sort of thought, I'd like to do this, and, you know, looking at different ways of doing it, and obviously later on you went to study music, and we'll get into that. But, I mean, am I right in thinking that, you know, your first real kind of venture into music was through DJing? Um, yeah, it was a combination of things. Certainly when I got to seven, 16, the day I was 16, I got a job in Woolworths and I went in the store, got the job. I spent one week on the till and the following week I said, can I work in the record department, please? And they were like, okay, then yeah, so you can do that. I spent two weeks in Woolworths and then a music shop in town opened. So I ditched that job in and got a job in the music shop. So I wanted to be out there doing things. So actually from as soon as I could drive, I was gigging and it was a mixture of... DJing, because that was kind of the easy money. Um, and I'd also offer a service where I sort of, for weddings, for example, I'd play during the meal, do a bit of background singing, and then do the disco at the end of the end of the night. So I kind of combined it all, threw it all in there, really, and did a mixture of things. So your sort of setup rig was kind of a couple of decks and a keyboard and a microphone, so you were just pretty much, you could do a bit of everything, really. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's that was kind of my unique selling point, is that I could say, look, I'll play during the meal, you know, I'll sing for your first dance, and then we'll get into playing some records and things. So I was able to to do everything, which was really, really fun. And and was that a success? Did you have, were you doing that quite yeah. a lot? Yeah, I did it. I mean, probably from, well, from 17, I was picking up work and then, Every I picked up a few residences, so I'd be playing in pub, in pubs and clubs and things. So probably from my 18th birthday onwards, I'd say actually I was working four nights a week, and and over Christmas more because I would do all the kids' school discos during the day and that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, it was um it was fun. It was a really fun time, and it was it was it was kind of easy money in a way because you know you you back then I don't know what people charge now probably a fortune but I'd be charging you know 150 quid or 200 pounds for doing a, a disco or something and you start doing that three or four nights of the week when you're 18 and suddenly you're you know you're doing doing quite well out of really just having a good time which is great so you're there you're doing this you've got a really successful DJ slash singing career going was it a case of it was just the most natural thing for you to do to apply to go to the Royal College of Music no well actually I I didn't even want to go um Actually, the Royal Academy. So I was, um, I was, I was going to be a singer-songwriter. I was going to be a pop star. So I decided that I was going to do that thing. So I actually, when I left school, having done A levels, all of my friends went off to university and to music colleges, and I didn't. I decided I was going to stay put. So I actually, at that point, I was managing a record shop uh, and gigging four or five nights a week, having a lovely time, and just writing songs and pitching songs to publishers and that kind of stuff. And this is, of course mid 90s ish where singer songwriters that sat at a piano were not particularly favored 
by labels. It was all about boy bands at that point. And, and that's, that's, what, that's one of the reasons. I'm sure there's plenty of reasons why I wasn't a successful singer-songwriter, but one of the reasons was that I refused to subscribe to that. You know, I was never going to join a boy band. You've, you know, you've, I don't think you've seen me dance, but you wouldn't want to experience that more than once. So, um, yeah, so I actually took a year out. And within that year, I was, you know, writing songs and sending off demos and things. And actually, it was at the end of that year, a couple of things happened. The music shop I was running, not anything to do with the way I was running it, it folded. It wasn't working. So they decided not to run this record shop anymore. So I was effectively unemployed. Um, and at the same time, um, a few things happened. So previously, when I was 15, um, I won a competition, the uh, Kent Young Composer of the Year competition. Um, and one of the judges uh, was Paul Patterson, who was head of composition at the Royal Academy. So this is when I was 15. So then three years later, all this happened. I've just found myself out of a job. He contacted me um, and introduced me to a guy called Nick Ingman, who was just about to start a brand new course at the Academy called the Commercial Music Course. Um, now, my opinion has always been, I'm sure wrongly, that w why did I want to learn about composers from... 100, two years ago, you know, 200 years ago, when really I wanted to be involved in music now and music of the future. So that was my kind of, that's the argument I kept giving myself. Um, and this course came along and, and Nick contacted me and said, look, we started this brand new course. Would you like to be our first and in fact only student? And, uh, and he told me all about the course and it sounded brilliant and it was brilliant. You know, it, it was a, a combination of um, you know, orchestration, arranging, it was to do with, there was some commercial writing for TV specifically. They had uh, lectures coming in from legal firms talking about contract law, what you should and shouldn't sign, how the business worked. It was perfect. Absolutely brilliant course. Um, so yeah, I jumped on that. And for the first year, I was the only student, which is quite bizarre because I had the whole thing to myself. And at the end of that first year, you know, we had a, the, the usual sort of debrief at the end of the year. What did you think of the course? And I explained that I thought there could be more of this, there could be less of that. Oops, and that's what they did for the following year. So um, it only ran for, I think, four or five years. It was a four-year course. So four years later, I graduated and became the only person in the country that had a degree from the Royal Academy in commercial music, which uh, which was great, you know, because it, it, was, it was an unusual... Uh, path to have taken and of course what happened was Nick Ingman this is now mid-90s when Britpop is huge Oasis Blur all that stuff Nick um, is an amazing arranger and he worked on all those songs all of the string arrangements on those songs from that period um, were uh, done by Nick, Nick Nick Ingman so my first experience really when I left college was um, Nick asking me if I would work for him which was brilliant because he knew everything I knew because he taught me really his way of working. So he knew what I was, um, my what my approach was, and how I would how I would uh, fit that particular um, job, and it was great. So I ended up having four years with with Nick as a mentor, and then leaving, and and continuing that relationship, and in fact, you know, doing all the things that kids today don't really get a chance to do. You know, I think the first session I went to was uh, either the Spice Girls or Robbie Williams or something. And it was just a real eye-opener. And just, you know, the whole thing of this podcast is all about these kind of moments. So really, you wanting to be a pop star and you kind of sending off something, it's pretty much, if you hadn't have done that, then you wouldn't have really been in that situation with Nick. No. In fact, I could probably draw the line further back to 
teachers at school that supported me. So I was I was sort of plugging away writing songs for my GCSEs and things. And my music teacher at the time, uh, a guy called Chris Tingley, um, really um, supported me. You know, he really, really pushed me forward to things. So he actually was the person that put me in for the Young Composer competition that I never would have done. And so he was sort of the beginning of the catalyst, if you like. Just having that help and support from people around you at that young age is, is absolutely invaluable, you know. So Definitely. I could probably draw a fairly straight line from meeting Chris and then working with his wife, Sid, and then meeting Nick, and, and the rest is kind of, you know, history, I guess. So you get to this point, I mean, obviously, you know, learning um, from such an incredible arranger and being around them and picking up, you know, things and going to sessions is extraordinary and also, you know, a- achieving the accolades that you did whilst, whilst you were there. When did you think, maybe I'm not going to be a pop star? I think it was when I looked behind the curtain a bit. When I saw how these records were made, and because I'd go to the briefs with Nick and various other people and you'd, you'd meet the stars and the producers, and um, I suppose I, I got to see how little sometimes of the creativity the artist had, and I'm sure it's different now, but back then in the 90s when you were talking about boy bands and things, it was, you know, they were told which songs to sing, apart from Take That, obviously, who wrote their own material. But, yeah, I suppose it was... a I started out, I still, you know, I still was carving a bit of a career. I, I started doing uh, lots of backing vocals on pop records in the mid-90s for various producers that I met along the way, still trying to sort of follow that path of being an artist. But, in fact, the first thing I did um, was for one of our good friends, Nigel Lewis. Um, I was went to a session with Nick, because he, I thought, Adina Carroll, I went to a Dina Carroll session, uh, Don't Be a Stranger, at Psalm, and uh, met Nigel there, got chatting to him and said what I was trying to do. And he said, oh, so, you know, he's a lovely guy, Nigel, send me some, send me a tape. So I sent him a, a physical tape, probably a cassette or something. And um, he started using me to do backing vocals before I was an arranger on some of his tracks. So um, there was a band called 911 in the mid-90s. And in fact, um, if you listen to, they did, uh, well, I don't know how much I should, I should tell on this podcast, but um, if you listen to one of their albums um all i can say is you'll you'll know exactly what i sound like <laughs> because i did all the bvs and i think there's a lot of me on there which is great um and and as a result of that you know i ended up doing i think my first string arrangement was for nigel it was private number um in probably 98 or something i can't quite remember but it was somewhere around there um and that went to number three wow and that's the that's the first time i think i heard something i'd done on the radio do you remember, just quickly going back, do you remember the first string session that you attended? As not, not for yourself, probably with Nick. Do you remember what it was? Oh, it was probably, I can't be sure, because there was, well, it was either um, Oasis or it was um, one of the Spice Girls I mean, sessions. Firstly, that's not bad going. As it's, a, not. <laughs> it's not. And did you, I mean, do you remember, I mean, it's a long time ago, but I mean, do you remember kind of how that felt or were were you surprised were you were you in awe were you just taking it all in or were you just sort of quite methodical about it it was actually was I mean the Oasis one was really rock and roll I can't remember the studio but it wasn't a big studio because it was just an octet it was you know when they were doing just an eight-piece string thing and I remember I was upstairs with uh, the copyist, Ron Shillingford, who had all his stuff spread out on a on a pool table, actually. And my job, as Nick was up there scoring, was to go down and listen while they were... Because they were literally recording it while he was scoring, because they liked to do everything really organically. 
And obviously Nick was working to um, a recording that he'd been given earlier that day. So my job was to go downstairs and see if anything changed and basically to go back upstairs and report back and say, oh, they've done, they've, ch- they've extended the bridge. They've done, you know, they've done a thing here. So then the copyist would be, oh, I've got to start again, you know, stop doing the parts again. So it was, a, it was nothing like um, how string sessions run now at all. It was really, really rock and roll. Um, and off the back of that, in fact, having been at those sessions, I think the first, one of the first professional gigs I did for Nick was to go along to kind of oversee, if you like, the MTV Unplugged, the famous MTV Unplugged that Oasis mm. did, wow. where Liam, in fact, didn't didn't sing. Mm. Uh, so I went along to the rehearsals and did that same thing, just watched, you know, watched the band play because we had, a, a, I think it was just a quartet and a brass section at the back of the stage. And just to keep an eye on it, and if anything changed, then to liaise with the string players and just to say, oh, they've, you know, they've changed this, they've changed that. Um, so, yeah, that was my baptism of fire, actually, really was. So you've done, obviously, during your time at the Academy, you'd, you'd, you'd studied, you'd worked with, you know, orchestras, and, you'd, you know, you'd done that thing. Um, but it's a very different thing to studying it and then watching and, you know, and ghosting your, your mentor and, you know, sort of watching that then it's you. It comes mm. to that day, day one, with Nigel Lois, who is a very lovely, lovely bloke, um, but a really big, big producer um, at yeah. that time, you know, literally one of the best. And you're walking in to the live room at a studio with your pointy stick, mm-hmm. with your score, and it's all on you. Yeah. What's I, that, you know, mo- I, what's I that moment it. like? <laughs> I was obviously terrified. And at the time... Um, the leader of almost every session I'd been to was a violinist called Gavin Wright, who played on so many amazing records, and he was just brilliant. He was the perfect liaison between the orchestra and the producer. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, but what he did, which, um, I, you know, I, I got onto the store. This was downstairs at Angel Studios, number three, and we start playing the chart. Unbeknownst to me, while I've been in talking to Nigel, he's told all the players to play the entire score a semitone lower than written. <laughs> so I start playing, I sort of, this is my moment, this is it, everything. And I get there, you know, I sit on the chair and I've got my, you know, everything, headphones on and we start playing. And of course, it all it's all wrong, everything's wrong. And it was just, oh, it was just excruciating. I honestly thought I just screwed everything up. Of course, Gavin stops everyone, okay, guys, goes, you know, joke's over. But yeah, thanks, Gav, for that. You nearly, it gave me a heart a, attack. That's a proper hazing. Oh yeah, really. It really was the new boy in the office. You know, go go and get the long wait. Go and get the sky hooks. It was one of those moments where I was, uh, yeah, made to made to suffer. Wow. And <laughs> yeah. was it? Um, do you remember if it was it was one of those kind of things where everyone was just happy straight away, or was it a kind of lots of changes, lots of stuff? On no, the I mean Nigel's brilliant in that we talked at length about what he wanted. And he's very trusting. And he was very trusting of me, given that I had done very little at that point. But clearly I'd managed to convince him it was going to be fine. And there was nothing to change. I mean, we, well, I say nothing. I'm sure we tweaked a few things along the way. But the bulk of the score um, remained intact, which was, which was really good news because, you know, now I'm used to changing anything on the session floor. I can do that. But back then, you know, it, it was a bit of number crunching. It was a bit of head scratching. Oh, how do I revoice this if I'm, if I'm cha- you know, it, it would have been really uh, not not difficult but it would have been more challenging than i think i'd like to have been for the first session given my you know wrong key start to the whole day 
But obviously it worked out and obviously, you know, kind of word spread and you started to become pretty busy. How long was it before it started to get to the point where you thought, oh, this is my job now? Um, I suppose when I stopped doing the other things, which would have been, because I was still, um, in fact, I didn't stop doing the other things for quite a long time, but I still considered myself, you know, a a ranger was kind of the full-time gig. Um, But I was doing, I was still playing and, you know, doing, clubs and various things um partly because i still enjoyed it to be honest i really enjoyed working um performing so i guess what happened next i guess it probably was more hand downs from nick if i'm completely honest i think he had been working with the spice girls and then emma bunton did some solo material uh some sort of um esso beso it was it was like um um latin a latin vibe thing uh and he didn't have time to do it all. So he came to me and said, you know, I've got a few overflow charts. Do you want to do some for Emma? So, of course, I said, well, I'm a bit busy, but yeah, go on then. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, and Nick was such a such an important part of my career development. He really was. And and still, we're really good friends. And, and still, you know, we talk regularly. And, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I, I even give him work back now, which is an interesting table turning situation but yeah so I suppose some Emma Bunton stuff and then uh, similarly when uh, Simon Clammy was producing the Motown album for Michael McDonald uh, again Nick was too busy so he gave me a couple of tracks to do there and I think that was the beginning of people seeing my name on those kinds of records began to, to consider me as maybe a safe pair of hands I mean yeah again one another incredible thing from your your mentor there to I mean yes it's, it's handing it down to you but it's also giving you such an incredible opportunity to shine as well um, yeah the shows, level shows of how trust. gracious he, he is as a, as a yeah, human he's a wonderful wonderful man so and um and obviously trusting you completely that you know he's going to put you up for it and you're going to deliver the goods yeah I mean he was there so for example on the Emma Bunton thing I think he did two tracks and I did two but he still conducted them he was there to make sure what I had done worked and had there been a situation where lots of things needed changing I'm sure he would have been stepping in thankfully there wasn't that but yeah it was it was a way of slowly introducing me into the into the world of of arranging and conducting and but in a way where he was still looking after me actually I had no idea when we started this interview I'd be talking so much about Nick and how brilliant he was but I'm glad I am but I think a lot of what this is all about really is just finding those kind of people and those moments that uh that that kind of that not only gave you that shot but also just inspired you and encouraged you um I think you know I think we've all got them um so you kind of carry on doing lots of stuff for lots of different people lots of records some big one I mean Michael McDonald obviously absolutely huge um records with people like Ronan Keating um Presumably this is about the same time as you got involved with Metrophonic as a production Yeah, so through Nigel, I met John Reed, who was part of the Nightcrawlers and had had huge hits with Push the Feeling On and various things. And we started writing together. Uh, And he was managed by, I think he was managed by Steve Wolf, actually, who also was looking after a few other people, but was involved with Metrophonic. Um, For those that don't know, Metrophonic was a writing production camp. And by camp, I mean, it literally was... A, build, a series of buildings and you could go there and it's one of the few places that had that old school approach if you get the artist in to come and stay for a few days and they go away with a bunch of new songs fully produced um, but um, yeah so I and John was 
Uh, she was maybe looked after partly by Steve, partly by Brian Rawlings, who ran the Metrophonic. So as a result of having some songs released that I wrote with John, Brian then signed me as a writer. So I ended up going there. And of course, because it is this sort of all-encompassing team of people, I met Mark Taylor and Paul Barry, these other very successful writers and producers, and started to do um, arrangements for them because I was kind of the guy in the kitchen at lunchtime that happened to be there and, oh, oh this is Ronan, he's uh, doing a record, do you want to do some strings? Yeah, yeah, I could do that. So it really was one of those things where because I was there, because I was around, I started to meet lots of people and as a result um, get more established in, in that world. And it was a really... Um it still is a, a fantastic kind of little kind of melting pot of, uh, of, of production and arrangement at Metrophonic. You've just got, you know, Brian Rawlings has, uh, you know, got four or five studios and they're always on the go. It's like a kind of mini Motown over there. And yeah, literally everybody just is involved in everything, aren't they? Yeah, no, it's a really good vibe. And the fact that every lunchtime, you know, you sit down, you don't know who you're going to be sitting there with. And, you know, one day it would be, I don't know, Delta Goodrum was there, we'd be chatting to her, and then there'd be somebody else, uh, Charlotte Church I worked with there. So it was, it was a really good opportunity to, you know, Brian's brilliant at putting teams together. He's, he's, he's very much a sports fan, and I think that actually translates into what he does with music. He, he'll find people that will work together well as a team and put them in the room and get some great results. So I, I agree, and we've had some amazing times down there as well. He's, he's, he's so good at doing that stuff. So you, you've kind of you hit a nice little kind of patch of doing great arrangements, working with great artists, you know, great songs. Um, when do you remember when the fir your first approach from anyone was about getting involved in anything to do with TV? TV, that would have been probably the Fame Academy thing, I would imagine. That's one right. of the first things I did. Again, yeah. and, and that was because I was at Metrophonic. I think they were approached to put together a team, basically. And it was myself and Nigel Lewis that spent most of our time in the house um, working on... It was a bit like a, for those that don't remember, like a sort of a mini X Factor in that every week, you know, these these artists, that are, these housemates would perform a song. They would write, either write or perform an existing song. So Nigel and I went in there and we basically put all the tracks together week on week um, for the show at the end of each uh, each Friday night, whatever it was, and they would go out and perform them. And that was, again, a really, really successful show um, for, for, for the BBC and a very different kind of show to, to the other shows, the ITV, other ITV shows, yes. which you then followed on to do as well. I did. That also, that came through... So Graham Stack is one of the resident producers at Metrophonic and he was approached to become... I'm not sure if it was musical director originally, but he certainly was involved to be in, asked to be involved in the show. And again, because I was the person there that did all the strings and, and you know, keyboards and things on various tracks, I sort of got... Um, my name was on the list. So, yeah, I think it was 2010 um, was the first year. So the show had been going... I guess a few years by then. Um, previously, all the tracks had been done by Nigel Wright, does a brilliant job of all that stuff. But I think they decided that when they, there was some change, I forget what it was, whether they were going to have more judges or more songs, but there was, there was a need for more producers, basically. So yeah, I spent a good few years um, working on X Factor UK and then actually X Factor America at the same time, which was pretty gruelling um, because I would spend Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday kind of on LA time and then there'd be a session on Thursday, and I'd spend Thursday, Friday, Saturday on UK time with a session on the 
Sunday, I think it was. So yeah, that was pretty. Uh, actually, it might be around the other way. But anyway, it was it was pretty full on. And how, just for people listening, when you when you talk about something like that, how um, how up to the wire do those shows go with regard to when you're expected to deliver something, and how close that is to actually the show being broadcast? Yeah, it was. In fact, it was the opposite way around. To I said, so you would in the UK, you would have obviously the final on a Sunday. There'll be a big meeting on the Monday, picking songs for the week. With any luck, by Monday night, you might have a clue, a short list of the songs or the theme for the week. Um, the session started out being on a Wednesday, so it basically meant I had Tuesday to do all the arrangements for the entire show. When I say arrangements, it was any kind of strings, choirs, brass, any kind of overdubs. So there would be. Uh, um, like a, a factory, you know, line of people. So you'd have the guy that does the drums, the guy that does the keys, and eventually it would end up with me, and I'd be the guy that did all the other stuff on top. And, of course, that was really... Wednesday was really tight, so it got moved to the Thursday, but there were occasions... And, of course, bear in mind, near the beginning of the show, you might have to do 24 tracks for the first show because everybody needs one or two songs and a, a survival song, which would be the sort of the stripped, stripped one. So it was a massive amount of work with, you know, copyists working through the night, me working through the night. Um, and then you'd get there and you might spend six hours doing strings and then it would be maybe the gospel choir that week would come in and you would spend literally eight hours recording gospel choir. It was such a long day. And then sometimes um, Simon would then change it. He'd, get, he'd start to get the tracks fed back to him and there were a couple of occasions where he said, actually, no, I've decided to change the theme. Start again. And literally you had to sort of... Every, all the players were booked, you know, strategically through the week for all these kind of pickup sessions, should something happen. And you could sort of press the big red button. It would sort of send the message out. All the players had to come back and you had to start again. It wasn't going to be Motown. It was going to be 80s or whatever it was. It was, uh, yeah. But the brilliant thing about it was, from a from an you know, if you want to put on your hat as a songwriter, as a creative, analysing that number of songs and having to get them from three and a half minutes down to 90 seconds, but still maintain the journey of the song and all the bits that the punters want to hear, was a real art. Because, of course, all these songs were chopped down massively, but you had to at least have the full story. You know, people had to feel like they'd had the full journey of the song, even if it was missing massive chunks. So that was quite a challenge. And I guess it's a really good lesson in trying to stay relaxed and adaptable. Yeah. I mean, nothing's ever finished until it's on air, basically. There, there was always something else to be done. You know, can we just change this? Can we just change that? And, and always in the pursuit of perfecting it, you know. And Simon's always right, you know. He's always, if he sees something, he has this brilliant way of being able to see, see something, not just from a, a labour point of view, but he can see it from you know, the punter's perspective. And he's really good at looking at something and saying, that's not working. And he doesn't mind saying it. And he doesn't sort of care. There's a, there's a whole domino effect of things that happen. Once he says those words, it means a lot of nights for a lot of people. But, you know, it's all, hopefully it was all invisible. When you saw the show on the, on the weekend shows, you didn't know, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that had gone into the creation behind it. I think that's something that... Um with Simon that, that we've spoken about before and a few people have spoken about before is that he does exactly as you say, he has a, a, a punter set of ears. He, he will admit, admit wholeheartedly he wouldn't know how the record is made, but he can listen to it in the way that we can't, that mm. we can deconstruct it and know what, how to change it. But he'll just say, oh, there's something that happens at two minutes and it's wrong and I don't know what it is. Yeah. And any time that's ever happened, 
certainly when when you and I have been working with him, it, it's always been correct. Yeah, you just listen to it and go, oh God, yes, I know what he means. Yeah, absolutely. But it's yeah. um, it's it's not that. Um, yeah, Cliff and I have worked um, quite a lot with the psycho with the with Susan Boyle, um, and again, you know, very similarly, it's anything that comes back, you kind of you you do understand that he's coming at it from a you know what's it sound like you know with the from 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 the puns from the person at the other end, but also I think over a while you kind of learn as would you say you learn as a producer and arranger to preempt that yeah. and start arranging for him yes absolutely and and never is that more true than on the x factor you know that what you're doing has to have events throughout that 90 seconds which which you know and they literally are this is where the firework curtain comes on this is where everyone stands up you you've got to have those sort of mile marks because along the arrangement that make it really clear that something is happening, something's progressing, and it is it's a it's a psycho term, isn't it? Eventizing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For TV yeah. and for records, it's you yeah. know some special effect, some magical thing just has to keep happening, so yeah. that it just yeah it keeps kind of getting bigger and bigger. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, we've we've, we've skimmed over a very, you know a large amount of the time we've spoken about has been when you and I have been working together. Probably my best recording experience was Kylie Christmas at Angel. Um, I wonder how that stands up there in your estimation. Yeah, it's certainly the most immersive recording <laughs> session I've been on. I mean, I don't know if anybody's seen any pictures, but the studio, we recorded it, it was sort of late summer-ish, as I recall. I'm sure you'll be able to correct me, but it was, you know, it wasn't wintertime, let's put it that way. And the whole studio complete with frosted glass on the control room window through to eight-foot-tall wooden soldiers and a full-size sleigh that you could climb in. was this? The whole place was turned into literally a winter wonderland. And it, I honestly think you can, you can hear it in the record. The fact that everybody got into the, the zone because they literally felt like, you know, that sort of thing as a kid when you go to the top floor of the department store and you get, you know, go in the room that's made to look like a sleigh, then you don't realise you're leaving through a different door, but you've actually arrived in the North Pole. It was a bit like that, walking up the stairs into Angel. You know, you walk into this space and it was so vibey and so Christmassy. It was absolutely brilliant. And it just gave, honestly, I think there was a, an element of joy that that brought that you can hear in the record you really can absolutely and and also that you know there were there were challenges in there i mean i seem to remember that there was uh, the challenge of of of, of taking a, an an original nelson riddle score and yes, yeah. recreating it exactly for a frank sinatra duet yeah that's right because we obviously the vocal that you had as good as as well as they had managed to remove artifacts of the previous recording it was still there and I've had this before I did a thing with um I think it was the front choir and we had a duet with Vera Lynn in fact we've worked quite a lot with um previous recordings and whilst the technology is really good at isolating the vocal you do still hear you know if there's a piccolo if there's something bright in the track it's still there so of course when you use that vocal you have to make sure at at those moments that that same instrumentation is happening to mask it and when you can't hear it, then you're free to kind of travel away a bit and do your own thing. But it's, it's and that's quite tough because you know, obviously an arrangement is crafted to have a certain excitement curve to it, and it needs to support the vocal and everything else. But to have to just go right in that moment there, I've got to have that exact same string line because I can hear it. But after that, I can do my own thing again. So yeah, it was it was a challenge, but lots of fun. 
And I think that album's quite a good one for you to, to, to talk about, even though you've done m much more um, on other things. I think that's a really good uh, example, well, that and Susan Boyle, well, of, of your choral arranging and how you, how we approach um, and you approach some of the softer um, choral arranging um, for us, particularly for girls' choirs. Do you want to talk, talk a little bit about the process of, of getting that beautiful, perfect sound? Yeah, well, it's a lot to do with um, how the, the place is mic'd up, but also in the performance. You know, you have to have... Everyone's so used to hearing pads on a keyboard where you hold the keyboard down. Keyboards don't need to breathe, of course. Well, real, real people do, unfortunately. So there's a real skill or... or magical mystery and trying to get a real choir to sound like that so what we often do is we'd have choirs that were able to stack up their parts over and over again and you would just basically you know have six girls singing as quietly as they possibly can breathing when they need to but making sure that they're not breathing when the person next to them is so that's the best way of getting a really smooth continuous sound just to stagger that breathing and then obviously if you track that a couple of times you start to iron out all of those artifacts or those kind of noises, to, you know, you get this kind of average, if you like, of this, just this beautiful, clean, pure tone. And as good as the sample libraries are, it's obviously not as good as the real thing because it's all those sort of, you know, moving from one note to the next and, and just the tiny kind of changes in in volume. And it, it just, there's, there's an, doing it that way is, is really the only way to do it. Definitely. Um... I, and I think, and just precision of of the singers, and uh, and and just again, that's all down to training as well. I mean, the the, the people that we use for that have have trained yeah. to make that sound. I mean, they've also well, like well, actually, they haven't. To no, be fair, they've trained yeah. to blow the walls off buildings. Yes, exactly. But, but to try and you know. I always dread that moment in a session where you say, can you just sing really, really breathy and quiet and virtually no voice? And you find yourself saying that, and they look at you and, think, and you, you can see on their faces, I've been training for the last 10 years <laughs> to be able to stand in a, in a hall and be heard by the man at the back who's half deaf. You know, it's those kind of words. And it's actually really hard to be singing really quietly and then stop and then rejoin without that being apparent is really, really tough. To have that level of control when you're working with such a small noise is actually remarkable. Yeah. No, it, it is. It is. And it's, yeah, it's a, an annoying producer, but it's a, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good noise. I always say that sometimes the best singers are like um, really expensive amplifiers that sound sweet when they're just put up to about three or four. Yeah. Um, just just for, the, for certain songs, not for all the songs. Yeah, um, yeah. The, but it's the same with strings as well. Rather than having six people play piano, if you have 20 people playing pianissimo as quietly as they possibly can and playing saltasto so they're not playing over the bridge or, the, or towards the bridge, they're playing more towards the fingerboard, it's, you can get the same volume, but it's a completely different sound, you know, because yeah. just the air moves in a different way. And, do you, and from, a, from an orchestra point of view, I mean... Can you ex can you talk a bit about the difference between what it takes when you walk into a room with these incredible musicians and they put the music in front of them and the first time they play it, you know, nine times, you know, ten times out of ten, it's all scored perfectly. It all they're playing all the right notes in all the right order, exactly as written. What is after you've done the first take and you've heard it exactly as it's supposed to be? What are the elements that you then need to adapt 
um, to, to, to change the to, to change how they're playing it. So not actually fixing any mistakes, mm. but just approach. How important so is approach? You're right. They will always play exactly what you've written. And if you've done a good job, you've told most of the story, but you cannot tell all of the story just by looking at the piece of paper. That You can't, you know, write heart into, into a performance. You can't, you know, um, give them an impression of how the music relates to the lyric in what they're seeing on the page. It's all that kind of stuff. So once you've got it down, yes, the nuts and bolts are right, but then you go in with your kind of, you know, sharper tool to really sort of start fine-tuning and shaping. You know, the, t- the tiniest change in a dynamic can mean all the difference, make a huge difference to how that the lyric sits on top of that and, and how, you know, if the strings are playing just that bit too intensely over a tender lyric, they, they pull the focus. They take, you know, take away rather than giving what they should be doing. So it's all about taking an overview once you've got to a certain point and then just really fine-tuning the, the absolute tiny details into that arrangement. And, of course, it's a balancing act as well because, you know, from being in a room with you as much as I have, you know, your, your, your primary thing is you're on their side. You're their friend. You know, if they're struggling, you'll help them. If, you know, they're done well, you'll praise them. If someone's, you know, it's, it's, you're very much there as your friend. So in the room, you're that. In your headphones, you've got someone like me <laughs> or, you know... It's saying, can you get them to do it more like the, you know, my famous quote that I always use is, you know, I want it to sound like an MGM, you know, black and white movie. And I, and, and, and just purely because I sometimes think that if sometimes orchestras do slightly phone it in, if you say, well, imagine yourself for five minutes that you're not here, you're yeah. playing, you're in MGM and playing for the, for classic, for the theme to Casablanca, it might change things. But yeah. you're, you have that balancing act of needing to deliver for the person in the control room, but also to keep everybody in that room on side. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I always go in, there are some conductors, I'm sure, that consider themselves, they're on the podium, they are elevated above the musicians, and they consider that that not just a physical thing. I absolutely go in and, you know, I'm, I'm standing in a room of people who combined have way more musical knowledge than me. I, I should never pretend to know more than they do. That's the first thing. So I always go in there and I'm totally open to all the suggestions they might have um, and never dictatorial about how things should be. I don't really say that. I try and choose my words carefully. Um, you know, occasionally, so an example of, I mean, you're talking about how sometimes you're, I'm the translator between the yes. box yes. and and what the what, you're, what I say to the players. One example of that is, um, occasions I've worked in Prague with other with orchestras that don't speak English, where you literally have a translator, so they're kind of almost doing your job in a way, which is quite fun. And I remember once talking about a particular passage. And as I say, I never wax lyrical. I don't talk endlessly about things. I just tried to describe how I wanted one particular section to be changed, uh, and I explained this to the translator. And uh, she looked at the orchestra. She said one word. I don't know what it was. The orchestra just smiled, <laughs> laughed a bit, and she turned back to me and said. Yes, they're ready now. <laughs> I have no idea what it was, but she clearly didn't say what I said. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it, your job is to try and, it, you know, you're you're very good as, or you're brilliant as a producer because you know exactly what you want and you can, um, you can you, you can describe that really clearly. Whereas some producers you work for, they don't, they can't do that. So you really do have to, you know, take what they're saying and try and turn it into a musical interpretation of what it is they're trying to achieve, which is which is sometimes uh, more difficult, but also more, uh, you know, a lot of fun to do that. So yeah, I do think it's uh, 
it's all about. I mean, also, I think once the players have, you're talking about the MGM moment, on some film scores that I've worked on um, and the composer has been there, before every cue, because the players generally don't get to see the film, I'll get to see it in front of me on a little screen just so I can make sure all the hit points are working. Um, gone are the days where John Williams would be in Abbey Road 1 and you'd have a huge screen at the back where everyone could glance and see. But I think um, sometimes you, you record a film score and the the composer will spend maybe 30 seconds just describing what's happening in the movie before they play the cue. And I actually think that's really, really useful because as much as it might be the tiniest difference in performance, they have a, an understanding of what it is that their music is, is doing in that scene. I think that's really useful to do. I think I completely agree. And, I, you know, going back to the, you know, similarly with the Kylie thing, I think the fact that she was in the building, I think sometimes whenever you're doing a, especially a pop session and the, the artist is there and it looks like they really care, you know, it's, um, I think that really makes, makes a huge difference. Definitely, um, definitely. So I think just before we we leave leave Miss Minogue, I, I think the uh, the interesting thing about her is that not only have you been able to work with her and myself in in a studio environment, you've also translated that to a live environment. Um, in you know, including you know, initially the BBC Prom, which was a, a huge one, but uh, the Kylie Christmas show at the Royal Albert Hall, which again was filled with the most incredible joy. Um, and, you know, you were conducting a, a beautiful orchestra there. Um, I seem to remember there was a point in the second show where the artist approached you unexpectedly. <laughs> yes, there was. It was, uh, yeah, one of, those, one of those moments where... Would you like to talk, talk about that a bit? <laughs> so um, Kylie's had lots of huge hits. Many of them are just her singing, but there have been a few where there is another voice. And sometimes when she performs, for example, especially for you, um, the other voice isn't there and she lets the audience uh, sing along, um, which, of course, leaves her with not very much to do on stage. And when she's when her end is really loose, she might look towards someone else. Uh, so obviously what happened um, in the Christmas show was I, well, I was the only person available. Let's be honest. I was on stage uh, doing nothing of any importance, really, just waving my stick and looking happy to be there. And of course, this instrumental section comes along in the song and uh, so Kylie walked over and we had we had a little dance, which was, you know, I'm not going to say it was one of my um, most memorable moments ever, but it probably was one of my even most though memorable moments ever. Even though you've got a mug with a picture on it. Yeah, I've actually got cushions <laughs> somewhere. One of my good friends, um, I, obviously I'm endlessly teased about this, but someone took a screenshot and printed it on a cushion, which sometimes lives on the couch behind me here, which is Amazing. of me uh, dancing with Kylie. <laughs> and as a, a live conductor, I mean, you've you've done that. For her, you've done that with very a lot of other people. You know, sometimes with me, with 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 people like Westlife, um, and you know, more recently on uh, a string of concerts um, for uh, one of them, 80s Classical, which is a show featuring original artists with uh, with new scores, and you know, uh, that that one almost bringing together the, the your love that you talked about at the very beginning of those beautiful 80s songs. Um, what's when you got the the chance to sort of when you were told so if you take someone like Nick Kershaw who I know that you're a huge huge fan of and have all the vinyl and yep. everything you know when you get the chance to do your take on their songs mm. what how do you how do you even consider that it's weird it's um 
it's almost like that film Signs where certain things have happened in your life all leading to one particular moment. And I do think that that, you know, I've talked about how those early to mid 80s were sort of my my years of, of finding music that I loved. And obviously, having previous to that been surrounded by orchestral music and, and, and that marriage between orchestras and, and pop. Um, and that was an absolute dream. I mean, literally, it was like a dream job because, you know, these songs are milestones in people's lives, you know, as much as the artist's lives that they're milestones in, but our lives, you know. Someone once said to me that a great piece of music can make you forget everything. Um, but I also think it's true that a great piece of music can make you remember everything, and it literally does. It can t transport you back. So I remember, you know, as you say, I've got, for example, Human Racing, I've got the single, I've got the vinyl. I remember listening to it endlessly and, you know, just loving the song. And what a privilege to actually be given the opportunity to say, well, look, here's a 65-piece orchestra. Why don't, you know, why don't we take this song that you know inside out and love so much and do something with it? You know, and it was a, it was just a brilliant moment. First of all, to be able to do that, and then to have Nick, you know, um, comment on it and basically say there was nothing to change. He loved, he loved the arrangement, and that was such a special, special moment because it felt like all the dots kind of joined up in a weird way. I'd gone from that, you know, thirteen-year-old kid that loved orchestras and pop songs to being that one person that was given the opportunity to bring all that together. And uh, yeah, no, it's just brilliant writing um, from Nick, a great song and a, and a fantastic opportunity. And I got to play the piano as well. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, how about the, that? The, the teenage you is, is yeah. Know, I don't think if you'd have told yourself that you'd be there playing piano to your arrangement of Human Racing with Nick on stage with a 5,000 people in the audience. I really had to kind of, it was a real pinch yourself moment, you know, and it was really hard not just to sort of, you know, say to Nick afterwards, I love you, this is great. <laughs> I did, I don't think I did anyway. I don't remember. No, I don't think <laughs> I don't think but I think there's a there's a part of you that is, you know, as much as you, you allowed your pop star dreams to sort of, you know, turn into this career, there's a part of you that still loves being on stage. And I think, you know, I, I alluded at the beginning of the interview to the moments in, a, in another show that we work on called Lush Classical where just for a moment, at the, at the right moment when you know something's about to kick off, the DJ performer comes in and you pretty much, you know, they'll, they'll think, oh, there's, there's a conductor up there. All conductors are stuffy. They're all, you know, I don't know. And you pretty much turn to the audience and your face just says, come on, let's have it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember um, the first time you did that? And were you <laughs> planning to do it? Well, no, I, I completely was a rabbit in the headlights first time. We, we did the first arena show and I had it in my head. I thought, oh, there's something coming up. Maybe I'll just turn around to the audience and give them a bit of a, you know, a hand gesture to keep them, you know, get them involved as you, you know, you see DJs doing and stuff. And um, I turned around and I sort of just suddenly thought... Wow, there's a lot of people here, isn't there? <laughs> and I just kind of stood there and didn't do anything. I just turned back and decided to face the orchestra again. And then about 10 minutes later, I got another mo another opportunity and I was a bit more animated second time. <laughs> but I, did, I just turned and literally just sort of froze and thought, oh, this is weird. There's a lot of people that are looking at me. I'm going to turn back again. <laughs> and then it was, it sort of turned into a bit of a moment and a bit of a thing. And then I seem to remember you began to accentuate it with in the encore you would change you would have a costume change yeah well you know got to do that I put the acid the acid house uh, t-shirt on and also I remember having a note of where the uh, um, streamers and lasers and lighting cues and, and pyrotechnics were going to be so I started to try and plan my moves <laughs> to match the fireworks which was you know really important 
most important thing of the night, forget about waving my stick and trying to get people to stay in time. But I think, again, that goes back to, you know, that thing I said about you, you know, wanting, you know, you're, 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 you're looking after 15,000 people in an arena, but you're also looking after 85 people on stage mm-hmm. um, who the very first year with the, with the wonderful Ulster Orchestra, mm-hmm. um, they'd never heard an audience like that in their no. entire lives because they're used to playing concerts and they were at a rave in an arena. Yeah. Literally, it was so loud. And you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, it's great fun to turn around, but also to, to, to people do expect the conductor just to be this kind of stuffy, posh bloke that stands at the front and doesn't really understand pop music. You know, whereas my whole life has been pop music. I just happen to do orchestral stuff as well. So for, for me to sort of turn around and engage with the, uh, with the audience like that, I think actually it was quite fun f- for them in a weird way. Because if, if you watch the average orchestral show, there's not actually that much to look at, you know, apart from the back of my head and lots of musicians doing f- fabulous performances, but there's no focal point really. So I just figured that just turning around for a second and jumping up and down, it might just make a bit more of a connection between the, the audience and the orchestra. And it's, it certainly did. I think, it, it, you know, we became better friends, if you like, after that. It's interesting what you say as well about that. I remember Trevor Horn once saying that um, most pop string arranging needs to be pretty simple and have moments. Um, and this is the difference between people that have been quite successful uh, at, at having a career at it and maybe not so successful because they just try and either show off too much or try too hard and you know, you, you've always been fantastic at making sure that you, you flourish where you can, but if there's a, just a point where the strings just need to be playing chords, mm. then they play chords. Did, did that take a while to learn, or is that something you just inherited from Nick? Because he was also very good at He was part of that. If you think of, I mean, one of his most famous arrangements was Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. And uh, it's really static, and what it, it becomes this kind of bed. And the lyric, of course, is so conversational. It's been seven hours and 15 mm. days, whatever it's been. And to me, that was brilliant because it underlined the just just the sort of, you know, simplicity of, of the storytelling at that point. She was just li- literally almost like reading out of a diary. So if the strings were doing anything that were going to be too expressive or, or become the focus of it, it, it would detract from what's there. So, yeah, I think that's that's a great example of of, of where you've got to be you know, playing a supportive role. And even when, you know, the strings can have a moment, but it, you all, you're always dancing around the vocal. Everybody listens to a song, you know, they listen to the words, they listen to the person singing. That's kind of the most important thing. If you can add to that by adding another layer, another texture somehow in that arrangement, which brings an emotion and maybe... Uh, the listener doesn't quite know why. You know, you, you've used a note as a transitional note between two chords that is slightly unusual. Most people won't know why it makes the hairs on the back of their neck stand up, but that's why. And if, if you overdo that, if you overplay that, it, people start noticing, you know, and that's when you've done a bad job. You, the strings should be there and they should they should help, be, you know, tell the story, but they should never become the story itself. And I think a really good example of that and a very famous example of that is probably something like Heaven by Emily Sunday, which starts with strings. And yes. it is block chords. It is, but yeah. But with a swell. Yeah. But but you, that's one of those examples when we were talking about people that 
you know, sort of the general public will listen to. You say, oh, if you talk to them about strings on, oh my God, I love the strings on that. They sound amazing. Mm. They're not doing anything remarkable, but actually they are. They're not doing anything clever, but they're doing no. something remarkable. So they, they, they underpin everything that's happening. And actually, as the, as the chart goes on, the cause actually gets slightly denser and slightly more yeah. complicated and slightly more unusual yeah. when it's creep in and out. So it does progress in that way. But yeah, it's they're very much the, you know, the the bedstone of of that song because they are. If you took the strings away, there's not much else in there. Um, but I like to think they they just do the right amount of goosing. Goosing. It's a goosing. Good it's, a, it's, a, it's a good word. Technical word. Now. It's, an, it's, it's a musical word. And I think on a, uh, but then on on something else of Emily's, I mean, there were other songs you worked on hers where you were allowed a, a little more um, kind of wiggle room and could um, add in some additional melody and stuff like that. Yeah, so I did, on that first album, I did, the second song I did was a song called Daddy, and then I did Beneath Your Beautiful, which is yeah. a, actually on, which was a labyrinth which, session. Uh, which had a, a sort of a, a, a string motif that wasn't on the original, am I right in thinking? Yeah, that's right. So, um, in fact, when I started scoring that, I don't think she was on it, I think it was all lab, and then she came into the picture slightly later on for the sessions. But, yeah, that's an interesting one, because um, there's quite a lot of writing that went into that, which is arguably more, in quotes, creative than... You know, sometimes uh, when you're doing an arrangement, a lot of the elements are already there and you're sort of leaning on them and developing them, but they're all kind of born of what was already on the track. But sometimes, you know, the track is sparse enough that you you can find, you know, footholds and you can start to put your own melodies and things in there. And that was an example of that. Which brings me to one of my loves and hates of the industry, of course, which Richard Niles will back me up on, is the fact that arrangers don't get... You get a credit for the job, but you don't get any... Uh, royalty for any of that stuff so if you think of that song which has been used endlessly as underscore without the vocal a big part of the arrangement actually is the strings but of course I got and I'm not complaining because I love my job but you know you get a fee and that's it you don't get any kind of writing credit uh, which I think you sometimes they do in Germany I think you do get like an arranging credit but so yeah it's a tricky one you, you know you go into these sessions and you know you're going to bring you, you, you always bring your best you're never going to go well, I could write something nice there, but I'm not going to because no one will know it was me. I mean, you're not going to do that. But um, yeah, it is one of the one of the anomalies of the job that that we do. That sometimes you wonder if it could have worked out slightly better. And actually, a really good, um, I think it's a really good example of your versatility of being able, you know, being working with you know, people like my, myself and, and Biff Stannard and kind of big pop writers and, and pop um, producers. But then to go into work with someone like Lab, who's from a completely different world, um, total genius. I've described him as kind of today's, you know, today's equivalent of Quincy Jones and, yeah. um, and just full of incredible ideas. And he was really open as well. That's one of the projects that I worked on where we did a lot of tracks. I think we did maybe eight or nine tracks on the album, all with strings. And he really just let me run with it. And I was able to do that thing where I could listen to the lyric and see if there was something musical that could maybe be interpreted from the lyric. And it, it often, you know, um, they put you know, they put strings on records and, you know, it, it makes it sound bigger and better and more expensive, but it doesn't necessarily uh, play such a big role in the final arrangement. And on a lot of the lab stuff, I was able to really do some pretty nasty stuff with the strings actually you know there's a song called vultures where we did these kind of seagull effects and it was quite hitchcock in some ways it was quite bernard herman in its design was well, supposed to be 
but um, yeah, so it was it was good fun and and re- to be able to do some really juicy arrangements and not get knocked back because so often you know you'll do something you think is really lovely or really not clever but something that you think brings something fresh and of course. The, the producer doesn't want anything fresh. <laughs> Just wants it to sound bigger than it did before, but not necessarily more interesting. Or yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting path we tread. In, in general, what is the process from the time that someone sends you a song and says, "Can you put strings on this"? Um, I try not to listen to it too many times before I start just doing things, and I'll literally get a string patch up and I'll play it down and I'll start playing lines and ideas sort of not knowing what's where the song's going because in a way um you you want to be like when a <laughs> that's my doorbell <laughs> better ask that one again the one thing i didn't do is turn the doorbell off that's all right <laughs> it's going so well um how should i start that again what did you ask me uh your process oh yeah and you were talking about which i didn't even know which like you started playing before you even really listened to it yeah so i try not to listen to the song too much i might listen to it once or twice just to get a handle on the structure but then i'll start playing ideas because you know when someone is hearing the song for the first time i.e not me someone's listening to it on the radio they don't know what's coming next either so i, I almost like to try and capture some of that spontaneity in what I'm doing it doesn't always stick sometimes you start playing stuff and you think oh god that was terrible but sometimes you 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 know you play something you think and you might go to a note that you perhaps weren't expecting you you thought the chord was going to go somewhere and it didn't um so you go to this note and then you resolve it you know halfway through that bar and sometimes you've created something there which is unexpected a place if you'd known the entire chord sequences you would never have gone to that place so I like to sort of put myself out there a bit and 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 literally just vibe over the the demo just to just to try and get a few really spontaneous, you know, heartfelt moments, and then then they'll take that hat off, then put on the the sort of the proper arranging hat, and say right, is, does this actually work? Can I do this? Is this is this breaking too many rules? Is this going to lead people down the wrong path? Um, yeah. So sometimes I approach it like that. Other times, obviously, I might know the song, and I will specifically do something you know, that's very opposed to what was on um, maybe an original version, I'll try and make sure that what I bring to it is different, you know, rather than just um, doing a half-hearted version of something that's already out there. Make sure that you go the complete other end of the spectrum. Which I think is a good example of that is um, how you approach both sides now on the recent Josh Groban album, which obviously has a very famous um, Vince Mendoza yeah. arrangement um of Vince who you obviously work with quite a lot as well but mm. um you 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 can't do you have to get get that out of your head completely and start yeah. from scratch I mean it's so iconic and oddly I had been working with Vince that week and I was terrified he was going to find out I'd done, <laughs> done a fresh arrangement on the song and he'd hate it um yeah no I think that was an example where you know it's such a brilliant ethereal breath his arrangement is it's a wonderful chart um and I wanted to make sure I didn't go down that road because anybody, and everybody knows that song, everyone knows the way it sounds and the way it makes them feel. I wanted to make sure that what I did was the other end, you know, complete other end. And also, you know, Bernie Holmes, who was the producer, had already played a, a really smart piano part, which was super sparse, um, and didn't answer all of the musical questions. So it was kind of leaving a few things hanging, which did allow me to do the same thing. Or occasionally I could resolve something where the piano didn't quite resolve and it, it, it just it sort of stacked up um, to be something quite different to the original version. 
Um, but of course, Josh being Josh and his amazing vocal, it, it had to get, you know, it had to go and tick all the boxes at the end. Well, and Sarah Bareilles as well. I mean, yes, of course. Yeah. You've got, yeah. Yeah. I mean, world amazing. class vocals. Incredible song, incredible singers. And, and again, you know, I genuinely consider myself privileged to be, even be near these projects, let alone doing something creative and musical on them. I really do. Talking about being privileged as we sort of kind of finish up um, the last few questions, I mean, it, it was back from where we've got to, but, um, you know, of everybody I know in my life, I don't know anyone who's more passionate about Disney than you. Um, <laughs> and you've been many times, you went as a child yeah. uh, with your parents, you've been taken your children, um, you very much are a Disney nut. Mm -hmm. um, just tell me about how Mission Space happened yeah i mean that is that was a real moment in time for me and it also only came about completely by accident so just to set up the background on my love for disney i mean yes i've been going there for years and i was always i loved the music at disney i loved the films i loved but particularly i loved the music in the parks you know the atmosphere it was almost like an underscore to walking around a film set. So you're walking through the parks and they have music playing everywhere. And the music is tied into the area of the park. So if you're walking from Adventureland to Frontierland, there's this subtle change in the architecture, the colour of the paving, but also the speakers start to play music in keeping with that particular area. Anyway, it's, it's all genius stuff and Disney is absolutely brilliant at doing that. And I've, it's, I've always been a massive you know, fan of how they did that. So when I went as a kid, I would come home with the album from the parks, which was originally on vinyl and then CD, and it would be all the songs that played on the attractions and all the music that you might hear around the park. And, it, you know, I loved it. I loved it. And it was, it's such a, again, we're back to that thing, time and place, but you hear those songs and it transports you back to the, to the feeling and, and to what you were doing in that particular time. So I've always been a massive fan of, of Disney in that respect. So the reason this came about was when I was actually signed to Metrophonic, uh, we mentioned Brian Rawlings before, uh, the head of Disney Publishing at the time was a gentleman by the name of Brian Rawling, without the S. And um, both of these Brians went to one of the American um, music um, seminars like Medem or something, and they were assigned the same seat because they had very similar names. There was some mix-up or some confusion. So they met, started talking, and... This was just around 2003 when they were developing a new attraction for Epcot called Mission Space. And um, obviously they got talking and the Brian in America, Brian Rawling, was aware of Metrophonic's success with songs like Believe, For Share and Enrique's Hero and various things. So he was like, well, hey, we need, we need a song for our attraction. So when Brian came back, um, knowing that I was a huge Disney fan, um, that was something he put my way. So he asked me to write a song for the attraction. And it's one of the most interesting writing processes I think I've been through because when you work for Disney, it's it's like writing by committee. Everything has to be... So they supplied us lots of literature about the attraction, you know, sound bites and then clips, um, text clips, you know, from space missions and various things that we were to sort of try and incorporate into the body of the lyric. And... We came up with a, with a draft of the song and we sent our verse version over and it was brilliant because the, they knew exactly what they wanted. They came back and said, you know, great song, but can we have a lift in the chorus? And you've used the word imagination, which we didn't think twice about. Whereas in Epcot, um, which is one of their theme parks, they have various um, buildings and, and one of them is called Journey into Imagination. So, of course, everything in that building is themed to imagination. 
So that word was off limits. You couldn't reference imagination in the space pavilion because it was confusing for the guests, potentially. So that was how um, forensic they were about the lyric. And we went through, you know, quite a few revisions to get it exactly as it should be. And one of the most thrilling things I've ever done um, was to go to the park with my kids, go on the attraction, and as we're walking off the attraction, we can hear this song playing and I'm singing some of the backing vocals and things. And I literally, you know, looked at my 10-year-old kids at the time and thought, you know, when I was 10, I was walking off these attractions and, and just loving these songs and loving this music. So to be in a position where I'd written the song uh, that was playing on the attraction is something I'm not sure I'll ever top. Because on, on, on so many personal levels, it was just such a special thing uh, for me. And it played for... 17 years or something you played for a long time and you know going back to this whole thing you know what we talk about the whole sort of such a good feeling thing I mean you've just that's coined it perfectly it's yeah you've just turned this passion of a, a child going to a theme park with their parents mm -hmm. to you being proud of written writing something when you're there yeah. with your kids and again you know I, I, I sometimes look back on that and I just think any you know how many people are on this planet? How many people are songwriters? And yet that just happened to find its way mm. into my lap. And it's incredible that you think that happened because there were so many people that could have been approached to write that song and it just happened to, to come my way. And, and it did, but it also didn't because, you know, it came from, you know, all of the things of you, whatever it took for you to get into, you know, all those things you've suggested about that ended, that got you working around Brian and you were in that yeah. room at that time and... You know, yeah. it was it was an element of it was kind of meant to be. Yeah. So um, yeah, now that that is amazing. Well, there's just a, a few final little questions, a few little quick fire questions. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not bad. Um, but they're just they're just kind of fun little questions to sort of to to, to end on because it's been um, it's been really great. And I've actually I've known you for a long time, and and there's a lot of those stories that I haven't heard. So it's nice to, you know, hear you talk about them as well. And I'm sure inspiring for anyone else out there who has looked at your career and thought oh I'd quite like to be able to do that and, and how has he done it and I I do think you know so much of it is immense talent but also you know your personality and charm and ability to be able to deal with other humans is uh, is something that has, has, has massively helped you um, I think you know well, thank you. to be professional and nice is 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 rare but actually most people that are normally do quite well so um so yeah so that's good so um just on a few kind of a few of these kind of feelings these kind of moments mm. um can you just top of your head what's your favorite amazing moment in a studio over your career i know there's millions but just pick one yeah um well obviously the abbey road session has to be or those yeah, sessions just, have to be up there i also think the first time you know whenever it when it was it, there's something about walking into a room um, and there being an orchestra sat there and then you're in the control room and, and suddenly you're immersed in this world that you've not been in before. And, you know, it's like a kid in a candy shop. Suddenly you can sort of see, oh, there's a desk, there's a guy, what does he do? And what, what's this tape machine in the corner? Oh, it's a computer and, and how does this work? And just that experience of walking into a, a session for the first time and hearing the orchestration or the string arrangement being crafted through those because of course then you'd have three hours on one track to record because you and you had the time to explore all these different ideas it doesn't really happen now but um yeah and I remember 
you know, Nick talking to the producer and, and, and trying things out and just that whole process of how it evolved in those, you know, those few hours we were there really opened my eyes as to, as to what exactly it was that happened in studios. So that's probably one of the most amazing things is, is literally going in and looking behind the curtain, you know, at the Wizard of Oz and going, oh, oh, that's how it works. Well, that's fun. I think I could do that. <laughs> and it, it must be lovely as well to consistently see that same thing happen. So for instance, you know, you, you've had that and you're used to that now, but we know that when there's a new, a new artist that comes in, they're everyone's first string session. You yeah. know, I just off the top of my head, think of someone like Harriet, who we both mm -hmm. work with that wide eyed, Oh my God moment. When the people, when they start playing that we slightly take for granted now. Oh, we do for sure. But, but isn't it, I always think it's wonderful looking at that through someone else's eyes. Yeah. Well, for them, it's almost like walking into a movie, isn't it? It's like suddenly, you know, this, this, orchestral underscore to my song is taking it to another level which in a way makes makes our job a bit easier because everything sounds great so um your job is half done because people are always blown away by the size and scope of what they're hearing and then you know um obviously if you've done a good job that the arrangement is going to be right and it is going to tickle the additional boxes but yeah i mean it's the most it's the most exciting and oh well the most immediate part of making a record for the artist is when they walk into that room and they hear that, and in three minutes they've heard something they've never heard before, and it's brought a new dimension to a song they've lived with for probably a very long time. And it's really helpful for us as well because, you know, or for a producer and arranger, you know, and an engineer, because there's so much else going on within those sessions. Like, we've got three hours to get more done than we really need to. Um, wow. We're trying to sort of fight against it. Um, mainly the topic of conversation is what kind of biscuits are out in the biscuit barrel. Very important. Uh, yes. Very important. <laughs> and there's a sort of a, a, a sort of droll, uh, considering we're about to do something incredibly difficult, I always say that there's a kind of a, a norm, we've, we have such a normality around it because we've done it so many times. So having someone come in and start shrieking, going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here, is, yeah. is really helpful for us because it, it kind is. of reminds us a little bit it takes us out of the kind of job of, right, we know what we've got to do. You yeah. know, Cliff and I worked together on an album last year for Marisha Wallace mm. and having Marisha in the studio who, you know, just literally every moment it was lit up on her face. She is a bundle of positive energy and so, it just flies through the room absolutely yeah yeah this is this is the girl that i think was was did a first by actually buying donuts yeah the orchestra and they'll never feel the same way again no no, no that's it they're, they're hers they're hers forever <laughs> hers forever um yeah a couple more little questions for you before we go what advice would you give to someone listening to this who loves the same things as you love, who loves orchestras, who loves arranging, who may have gone a slightly different route, may have not gone to the academy, may have been able to learn a lot. Obviously, with technology as it is, there's a lot more options of how you can learn to score now than maybe, you know, when you started with writing, writing scores onto paper and stuff. Is there any advice you would give to someone coming up that wants to do your job? Only the same advice that I kind of gave myself in a way, which is just say yes to absolutely everything and then worry about how you're going to do it. I mean, there's always a way to make these things work and every experience, good or bad, is a learning experience. And I think as long as you're consistently positive and you take on board, you know, you learn the lessons from everything you do, I think that's the best way to sort of keep moving forwards. Um, 
yeah, and just be a sponge. Listen to all kinds of music that you can. Now it's even easier to listen to, of course, all kinds of music. And on YouTube, you can find stripped mixes of things and acapellas and strings only. And, you know, try and work out what it is about the arrangement that you love, that you love. Why is it you love it? You know, what is it about that particular arrangement? You know, take off the the punter hat and put on the professor hat and sort of analyse what it is you're listening to. You know, why is it, like I said earlier, you know, I'm getting tingles. Is it, oh, it's because of that note. It's that note in that scale. What is that note? I remember that one for when I need to pull that one out of the bag later. I think it's all that stuff. It's just listening to loads and, you know, playing playing your ideas to people as well and getting feedback, you know. And if you if you find yourself playing, you know, a, a song or something to someone else and before you play the song, you say, oh, um... By the way, before I play it, the verse is a bit long and, and I should probably do something with the chorus. Chances are you should probably have done that before you played it to someone. <laughs> so just listen to yourself and listen to those kind of telltale signs along the way. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I think you've proved that it is all about those little moments, those, you know, you, you've more than eloquently presented the fact that this bunch of small events, you know, have led you to this incredible career and these incredible moments um, and a career that's still going on and that you're, you know, continually busy and you're working with, you know, me and a lot of things. You're working with incredibly cool people like Tom Walker and, you know, uh, various people like that and conducting huge movies and having been able to work, uh, continually work through the pandemic for uh, legally, which has been fantastic. And I know it's mm. been a, I know it's been a, a struggle, but I think you've managed to do it really, really well. So um, I guess the next thing is uh, we should hopefully be looking forward to seeing you or the back of your head um, in the in the summer conducting yeah. some festivals. There's a bit of that, yeah. As you say, I'm in Abbey Road in a couple of weeks conducting a, a big Hollywood movie. I'm not sure I can say what it is, but it, it involves no, dinosaurs, I'll say that. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, for that, so doing some preparation for that. But, yeah, hoping very much that we'll be back in the real world with lots of screaming audience members in, having a lovely time in a big And you turning space. around at that opportune moment and saying, come on, everyone, let's have yeah. it. Let's have it. Like that mobile button. mobile DJ that you yeah. once were, I think just conducting a an arena crowd rather yeah. than a than a mobile disco. I think more conductors should pogo. To be honest, just turn around <laughs> and jump up and down. I think it's the way they never taught me that at the academy. To be honest, I think there's a big misunderstanding there. Yes, pogoing good, dancing not so much. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, not so much. Brilliant. All right, Cliff. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, oh, it's been lovely. Thanks for having I'm, me. I will see you very soon. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. See you.